This is the Grind It Podcast. We know just like grinding a handrail or across the coping can be challenging at times, so can life be. We share God's Word and personal stories to encourage you to keep grinding and to not give up. It's time to grind. So here's the old school skateboarder himself, Randall Tucker. Welcome to the Grind It Podcast. Today, we're going to start Romans chapter 1. Yep, that's right. We're going to cover the book of Romans. And I look forward to studying this book. I've never covered the book of Romans before. So I just I can't wait to just to jump in and dive straight in to Romans with you and talk about this book. But before we do uh, get into Romans chapter 1, which will be in the next podcast, I just want to give an overview of the book of Romans. And to do that... Um, I took, I, I went to a website uh, from Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite preachers of all times. Uh, he has a, a, a page uh, from his ministry called Insight for Living Ministries. Uh, Chuck Swindoll is the pastor of Stonebriar Community Church in Frisco, Texas. Great guy, great uh, preacher, uh, a great, he, he just breaks down the Bible uh, very well. And uh, I trust a lot of his teachings. And um, he, he has, um, on, on his Insight for Living Ministries website, he breaks down an overview of Romans. So I just borrowed a little clip from that, and that's what I want to use to, uh, just to give this brief uh, overview of um, the book of Romans. And then I'll use something else here in, in just a little bit. But he says, Chuck Swindoll says, the, the primary theme that runs through the, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans is the revelation of God's righteousness and his plan for salvation, what the Bible calls the gospel. And he says, he uses Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is, is, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, also to the Greek or the Gentiles. And that's, uh, as we'll see, uh, a lot of this book is written to those people, the Gentile people. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Romans 1, 16 and 17. So Paul showed how human beings lack God's righteousness because of our sin. That's chapters 1 through 3. They receive God's righteousness when God justifies us by faith, chapters 4 and 5. Demonstrate God's righteousness by being transformed from rebels to followers in chapters 6 through 8. And confirm God's righteousness when God saves us or God saves the Jews in chapters 9 through 11 and apply his righteousness in practical ways throughout our lives in chapters 12 through 16. And so, again, he says the primary theme running through Paul's letter to the Romans is the revelation of God's righteousness in his plan for salvation. And I just broke that down uh, the way uh, Chuck Swindoll breaks that down. Now, I also went to uh, gotquestions.org and, and took a brief summary from it uh, and you know, I could sit here and do this all day long, but they just, they've already, you know, somebody else has done all the hard work. I'm just relating to you what the book of Romans is going to be about before we dive into it in more detail. Now, when I get into the, 
the the verses. It's going to be my my thoughts and my commentary. Uh, but for these summaries and and what and uh, this overview of the Book of Romans, I'm just using some outside sources. So this one is a this summary is taken from GotQuestions.org, and he says Paul was excited about being able to minister at at last in this church because he talked about wanting to go to uh, to Rome. But we know that he uh, wasn't able to go at first, but then he went there as a prisoner because he appealed to Caesar. Um, but he was excited about being able to minister at, uh, at this church in Rome. And everyone was well, uh, well aware of that fact, Romans 1, 8 through 15. The letter to the Romans was written from Corinth. You know, that church had a lot of issues, the church at Corinth. But the the, the letter to the, the church at Rome was written from Corinth just prior to Paul's trip to Jerusalem to deliver the alms that had been given for the poor there. If you remember, Paul went around when we studied the book of Acts. And if you hadn't listened to the book of Acts, uh, by all means, go back and listen to the breakdown of the book of Acts. And we see Paul uh, going around to these churches and asking churches to take a collection because the church in Jerusalem, there's a drought going on and they're, and they're struggling. There's a famine. And so he's raising money to send to the church at Jerusalem. And so this letter to the uh, the, the church at Rome uh, was written from Corinth just prior to his trip, Paul's trip to Jerusalem to deliver the alms that he had been given uh, for the poor there, that, that collection he had taken up. He was going to take it to Jerusalem. He had intended to go to Rome and then on to Spain, Romans 15, 24, but his plans were interrupted when he was arrested in Jerusalem. And, and if you... Like I said, if you haven't listened to the, the book of Acts where I broke down the book of Acts, you need to go back and listen to it. Because I, I covered this when, when Paul was arrested. Because Paul was warned by prophets of God, by the Holy Spirit of God, don't go to Jerusalem. And he went to Jerusalem anyway. And since he went to Jerusalem, he was arrested in Jerusalem. And that's when he appealed to Caesar. Um he would eventually go to Rome as a prisoner, which is what I just said. Phoebe, who was a member of the church at Centria near Corinth, Romans 16.1, most likely carried the letter to Rome. Uh, the book of Romans is primarily a work of doctrine and can be divided into four sections. The righteous, righteousness needed, righteousness provided, righteousness vindicated, and righteousness practiced. Just, they break it down just about like how Charles Swindoll breaks it down as well. The main theme of this letter is obvious, uh, 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 which is righteousness. Guided by the Holy Spirit, Paul first condemns all men of their sinfulness, and he expresses his desire to preach the truth of God's word to those in Rome. And it was his hope to have assurance that they were staying on the right path. And we see that that's a theme in Paul's letters. Uh, he strongly points out that he is not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16, because it is the power by which everyone is saved. Uh, the book of Romans tells us about God, who, who God is, and what God has done. It tells us of Jesus Christ, what Jesus uh, accomplished by his death. It tells, uh, it tells us about ourselves, what we were like without Christ. Um, because Paul's going to say in chapter 5, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. So he's, he, he talks about uh, how, we, how we were without Christ and, and who we are after trusting in Christ. And Paul points out that God did not demand uh, men have their lives straightened out before coming to Christ. And, and he uses the verse that I just quoted, while we were still sinners, Christ died on the cross for our sins. Now, I did find um, a, uh, a dissertation or a paper written for a school 
uh, by Professor Henry F. Burton from the University of Rochester. Uh, and he, he titled this writing, um, uh, Rome and Paul's Day. And he gives a great insight of what Rome was actually like in Paul's day. And uh, when Paul was penning this letter to the church at Rome, and, and I'm just going to read some of it, not all of it, but I'm going to read some of it. And as I read this, it, it, it literally sounds like he's describing the United States today. And what's so cool about this is I, I, I was having a conversation with some friends today at one of my stores. And the lady said uh, that uh, she said that things were so much different back then in the Bible days. And, the, you know, the Bible is not relevant today. And I, I was like, no, it, 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 it was not different back then. It, it was literally the same. It may be magnified today because of social media, but it, it was literally the same. And, and we'll see this as I read this. Uh, this guy's name is, once again, Professor Henry F. Burton from the University of Rochester. And his writing is called Rome and Paul's Day. And he says, The century that began with the dictatorship of Julius Caesar and ended with the reign of Nero marks an epoch in the topographical and archaeological history of the city of Rome. Caesar, the real originator of the empire, and Augustus, who found Rome a city of brick and left a city of marble, and their immediate successors completely reconstructed the old city of the Republic. During this period, the Roman Forum was transformed from a marketplace surrounded by shops and a few ancient temples and public buildings into the brilliant central area of the imperial city, glittering with marble facades and gilded bronze uh, statuary. Additional, uh, additional four open squares surrounded by colonnades were constructed on a, a still more magnificent scale in the vicinity of the Roman Forum. Scores of ancient temples were rebuilt and scores of new ones dedicated in every part of Rome. On the level ground in the campus Martius and vicinity were erected theaters and race courses and promenades and public baths. The Palatine Hill became the official residence of the emperors and contained the private palaces of the imperial family. The eastern hills and the bluffs above the Tiber were covered with villas of the nobility, while the lowland along the river and, the, and between the hills was thickly built up, up with the tall uh, tenements of the house that housed the lower classes. Meanwhile, Rome had outgrown its ancient walls and were falling into decay, or which were falling into decay, and a belt of suburban residences already encircled the city on all sides. Rome in Paul's day was already the foremost city of the world in wealth and outward splendor. Sounds like the United States. Rome had two centuries. Rome had for two centuries been gathering to herself the treasures of the Greek world. Not only its gold and silver and its paintings and sculpture, but its trained architects and artists as well. The importation of works of art and art workers no doubt stimulated the growth of native talent. And in the architecture, at least the Romans developed an originality of the most valuable sort, the power to combine a new and adapt to their own purposes already existing types. Rome in the first century was no doubt a pair of venues still with more wealth than taste, fond of extravagant display, yet shrewd enough to value the culture of others and to utilize it in the building of the capital fitted to express her military and political supremacy. The population of Rome in the first century AD had become thoroughly heterogeneous through the gradual absorption of elements from every part of the empire. The native Italians were now insignificant in numbers and were no longer the controlling force in the government or society. 
The court circle included many of old families, but the power behind the throne was usually some favorite of foreign birth or descent. The great offices of state were often held by non-Italians, and the civil service was filled with freedmen or the sons of freedmen who had come to Rome as slaves. Sound familiar? The great names in literature in this century were provided uh, were of provincial or- origin. Wealth, which was formerly monopolized by the nobility, was now shared by newcomers of every nationality. Sound familiar? Trade was chiefly in the hands of non-citizens, and Rome swarmed with traveling merchants from every quarter. Sound familiar? The poor poor class of citizens regarded all productive labor as beneath them and were content to live in the greatest poverty on the pittance doled out to them by the government and the gratuities received from their rich patrons. In other words, the, the government took care of them, and they took handouts from people. That sounds way too familiar. Adding to these several classes the hosts of the foreign and home-born slaves, we complete the catalog of the motley population of the capital. The life of Rome under the early emperors was varied and complex. Politics and war were no longer, as in the last century of the Republic, the chief interest of the people. With peace had come the revival of religious ceremonial, increased cultivation of literature, new commercial activity, and an enormous development of all forms of public amusement. Nothing's changed today. We love amusement. In their personal life, the Romans of higher and lower rank differ infinitely. uh, infinitely. Uh, The rich in their costly dwellings lived in luxury and busy idleness on the wealth gained by inheritance or extortion. Sound familiar? The poor citizens contented themselves with an attic room in some tenement and their daily allowance of grain and free admission to the games and the baths. So they got into the, 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 uh, uh, the, the entertainment for free and they were able to take, use those, those baths that were built. Uh, the tradesmen and the artisans, generally foreign residents who occupied the place of middle class in modern society, were enterprising and unscrupulous and were looked upon with contempt by those above and below them. Sounds very familiar. At the bottom of the social scale came the freed men and slaves who did most of the work of the Roman world. Uh, They served as teachers, physicians, actors, copyists, and clerks. At the banquets, they acted as musicians and dancers. As laborers, they tilled the soil and cultivated the olive and the vine. The trades were mostly in their hands and domestic service was wholly performed by them. They were carpenters, shoemakers, potters, founders, bakers, and cooks often superior to their masters in in intelligence and education, indispensable to them, yet feared by them. They were treated at times as friends and equals, at times with brutal cruelty. The family life of the wealthy classes was often corrupt. Nothing's changed. Yet here, as elsewhere, the statements of the satires and the gossipy historians must have uh, be received with caution. The life of an average Roman family probably differed little from that of the modern European household. Women were held in high esteem and enjoyed greater freedom than in Greece or Asia. Marriage was usually a matter of convenience. Uh, Same today. The power of divorce was unrestrained by law. Same as today. And as frequent abused as in modern society. It is still abused to this day. Uh, Children were taught to show great respect to their parents and elders. Their elementary education was usually received at home often from the parents themselves. In families of good position, boys were given advantages for higher education in literature, oratory, and philosophy. 
Rome was adapted by its situation both for inland trade and commerce by sea. Its business prosperity kept pace with its political growth, and at the period of which we are speaking, it possessed a well-developed commercial system, including gold and silver coinage, banking and exchange, joint stock companies, postal communication, and extensive, though not rapid, means of transportation. Nothing's changed. It sounds just like it does today. We're just more modern. Then, as now, wine and olive oil were the chief articles of export from Italy. The import trade was large and including many of the necessities of all the luxuries of life. Silks, tapestries, uh, jewelry, dyes, spices, perfumes were bought from the eastern Mediterranean and from the Orient by the way of Alexandria. Large quantities of grain were imported from Egypt and the Black Sea and marble and other building materials from Asia Minor, Greece, and Africa. But the business life of Rome rested on false economic bases. Its commercial prosperity was created not so much by the productive industry or legitimate trade as by plunder and extortion. Same thing today. By far, the larger part of the wealth that flowed from the capital came as tribute from the conquered territory or in the form of captive slaves who labor enriched their Roman masters. You had to, you know, they conquered the territory. You had to pay for your freedom is, is basically what was going on. For your citizenship you had to pay money uh, to the Romans these were sources from which money was obtained to buy the wheat that fed the Roman populace the marble that went into the Roman buildings and the silks and the jewelry of Roman matrons nothing is more characteristic of the life of Rome under the Caesars than that of the extraordinary interest felt by all classes in the public amusements of every kind recreation of an unintellectual sort was especially popular. In the theaters, the legitimate drama had been crowded off by the stage, by the farce, and the pantomime. The chariot races in the circus were the great events of the day, and more than one emperor enters the contest as a charioteer. Still more popular were the sports of the amphitheater. Long before the Colosseum was built, the gladiatorial, uh, the gladiators, uh, those shows were uh, the chief attraction by Ro- of a Roman holiday. The public baths and the great public squares known as porticos are to be classed among the means of recreation at Rome. The porticos, rectangular areas surrounded by colonnades planted with trees and flowers adorned with statuary, were favorite places of resort. It was the political philosophy of life that most interested Roman thinkers. They cared less for the problems of cosmology and theology and psychology than for the living questions of character and conduct. In their theory of morals, they differed, as ethical philosophers have always done. The Epicureans were utilitarians, and the Stoics intuitionalists. But in their, and that's the two classes of people that that most people uh, are familiar with. But in their practical teachings, they were very little among themselves and did not differ greatly from modern moralists. Justice, truthfulness, purity, self-control, brotherly love were the cardinal virtues of every system. The Roman religion was originally a form of nature worship, whose gods, little g, whose gods were personifications of physical forces, and whose rites were a simple expression of awe and gratitude and desire for divine favor. But at the Christian era, it had become, on the doctrinal side, a mass of petty superstitions, and on the formal side, an endless round of trivial observances the numbers of gods little g great and small was almost infinite every locality every event every act had its special divinity 
Ancestor worship was practiced in every household, and the spirit or genius of each individual was conceived as a divine being, distinguishable in some vague way from himself. Worship of the emperors was an outgrowth of ancestor worship, for it was limited at first to the deceased rulers, but was soon extended to the living and became the chief expression and supreme test of political loyalty. Foreign religions were tolerated and even patronized unless they were thought to be politically dangerous. That was until Nero came along and started the fire and blamed the Christians. Temples were erected to Egyptian deities and were frequented by Roman worshippers. The Jewish Sabbath was well known in Rome and was observed by others than Hebrews. As the masses became more superstitious, thinking men grew more skeptical. With such men, real faith in the gods of mythology was probably very rare, though in the case of more spiritually minded, a belief in a divine being, more or less distinctly personal, had taken its place. Yet the agnostic attitude was the prevailing one, and downright atheism and materialism were not uncommon. This insight from Professor Burton, it gives... uh, that he gives to to Rome, uh, he gives us uh, this insight into Rome. He describes uh, Rome in Paul's day, and it's it, it just sounds like he's describing America today. Yes, it was a long time ago. Yes, it was over two thousand years ago. But it just it just matches our day and time. It sounds like he is describing the United States, our society. It's just more modern now. Christianity has already been introduced into Rome. The church has already been established. And Paul writes this letter in hopes of visiting the church there in Rome. Not churches. There was only one church. The church in Rome. Um, and he wanted to encourage them to persevere. And, and he, he, like I said at the beginning, he's going to get the visit, but not the way he intended um, because he's going to be arrested, he's going to appeal to Caesar, and he's going to be sent to Rome as a prisoner for the sake of the gospel. Now, that's the overview of the book of Romans, and, and, and it's, it's going to be all about the righteousness, the righteousness of God, and how God loves his people, and how he has taken care of us through Christ Jesus. I cannot wait to dive into Romans chapter 1 with you in the next podcast. Thank you for listening today to this brief overview of the book of Romans. God bless you. Keep grinding. Thanks for listening to the Grinded Podcast. If we could pray for you or encourage you in any way, please email us at thegroundedpodcast at gmail.com or you can text us at 865-418-2824. If you're watching on YouTube, please click like and subscribe and you'll be notified about new episodes. If you're listening on an app, leave us a five-star review, but most importantly, share the Grinded Podcast with a friend. God bless you, and remember, keep grinding.